How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by Action Specialty Coffee. If you haven't tried Action Coffee yet, you need to try it. And you do that by going to drinkaction.com. And that's action with a K. Action's pretty awesome. It's uh, coffee that's sourced directly from Guatemala. It's small batch roasted in Austin, Texas, and it's shipped directly to your door. And you can pick one of three roasts, light, medium, or dark. Um, and Action also has a MCT powder blend that's a medium roast. It's infused. It's pretty darn good. And uh, you'll also be super excited to know, if you're a fan of Action, that they're going to be launching a new website soon. And that will be at actionperformance.com. And at that website, you'll find all of your favorite coffees, as well as a new line of performance supplements. And it's going to start off with two products called Active and Fuel. Active is a turmeric and hemp-based product, and Fuel are MCT bombs. So listen, if you're looking for a really good turmeric or CBD product, uh, or if you're looking for some really good MCT bombs for that on-the-go clean energy, go to actionperformance.com and check it out. My guest today is, uh, wow, very inspiring gentleman, um, and he's had quite the story and journey, and it's started off with a lot of success in the music industry, but it pivoted rather quickly in 2002 when he was arrested in a sting operation for selling just under $1,000 worth of marijuana to an undercover informant, and after being found guilty, was sentenced to a mandatory minimum federal sentence of 55 years in prison. And after multiple failed attempts of appeals and petitions, was finally granted clemency in 2016 after 13 years in prison. And since his release has made it a mission to help others that are in prison as well for crimes in which a lot of cases uh, people are legally um, consuming cannabis in similar ways uh, today. So really interesting conversation and I think it's one that can't be had enough and that I hope you share with your friends because it's really important if you're somebody who uh, believes it all in freedom. Weldon Angelos, my friends. Okay, there we go. What's going on? Man, chilling, man. How about yourself? Same thing. Same thing. Cool. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I uh, I came across your story probably a year and a half ago, and um, I know my brother helped out with some things with uh, Mission Green. Yeah, with the launch. Yeah. Yeah, and and I you know I I kind of put this on the list of when I get to my podcast and start doing some things, wanting to make sure I reach back out. So, uh, you know, thank you again. And, uh, you know, I think for those who aren't familiar, I definitely want to make sure we kind of in the front end lay out your story, but I really want to kind of then go back and talk about the lead up to it and, and really get into welding the guy, like who's, who's welding the person, because I think the, the story about what happened to you is even more impactful when you understand who the person is or who went through that. Right. So right. Um, if you can maybe just lay it out, you were uh, early two thousands arrested um, in a sting operation, correct? 
Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, 2002. Um, do you want me to go back further or do you want me to take it from there? Well, what, yeah, let's start, let's start there. Give, uh, let's just kind of give the, the real quick synopsis of like what happened and then maybe we can go back to a little bit before it happened and kind of start there and tell the longer story. So yeah, so um, the local authorities, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. I was uh, bringing, because um, I was working in LA, you know, I was in the music industry and I was bringing a lot of artists out, to, out here to Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, to try to, you know, get the industry out here going. I brought Snoop out. We did a, a, a video called A Little More Dope to Smoke. And it was kind of a funny video to a song that we had done. And the local authorities got a hold of the raw footage from an informant who was in our circle. And they used that to start off an investigation. They wanted to know what I was doing with all these rappers and weed. And so they um, sick this informant on me to purchase some marijuana and he actually only purchased a few hundred dollars three times and with that you know he started asking for guns and drugs and meth and coke and we're like nah man get out of here I don't fool with that and so they had nothing else and like six months later you know they kept trying to get me through other people and I just didn't bite you know I was making good money in the music industry and they finally um, submitted the case to the federal government um, and I got indicted um, a crafty prosecutor turned those three weed sales into a 20 count federal indictment where I was facing 105 years at trial. I went to trial, of course, I wouldn't accept their plea offer. They wanted me to serve 15 years for one weed sale worth $300. And I said, no. Um, so I went to trial and I won some counts, lost others, and I got a mandatory 55 year sentence. That was a minimum. And, you know, the judge who was, you know, for, forced to impose it was the conservative George W. Bush appointee. And we thought, you know, because he could have given me, you know, 65 years, and we thought he was probably going to give me, you know, more than the minimum, but it ended up being that he actually was against the punishment. He thought it was ridiculous. He sentenced a murderer an hour earlier to a maximum of 17 years. And so he looked at this case, he's like, the minimum I can give you is 55. Um, have you been prosecuted in the state offense? Because one of the state uh, probation officers um, reached out to my judge and said he would have gotten six months or maybe even probation in the state level. And so my judge is like, this makes zero sense. But his hands were tied. So he said, the only thing I can do is call on the president to meet your sentence. And so he went down kicking and screaming, basically. <laughs> wow. So okay. I grew up in a single parent home. My dad was disabled. So we grew up on welfare. Um, you know, my mom left when I was four, so we were living in like, you know, government housing. We had literally nothing. And so, you know, I, you know, uh, I think I, you know, gravitated more towards hip hop. And so, you know, because I felt what, you know, when they talked about the struggle. And so I wanted to make hip hop. And when, you know, when Snoop Dogg came out, I was like, oh, man, this is the dopest shit I ever heard. And so, um, you know, I started going out to L.A. because I had family out there and went out there and stayed one summer. And, you know, we started going to the recording studios in L.A. because the ones in Salt Lake just didn't have the quality we were looking for. And I started bumping into people um, from Death Row Records, like the Dog Pound, Tupac's Outlaws, and started working with them. Eventually I befriended a couple of them and you know they taught me the industry. My best friend was from Tupac's group, the Outlaws. And so, you know, just being around them and then, you know, I just started growing growing up around them. I ended up on Snoop's couch, you know, hanging out, um, recording songs in his um, you know, in his Claremont mansion and um, eventually I ended up signing a record deal. Um, I think it was in 99 or 2000, you know, I signed a major record deal and I did a whole album for Snoop Dogg called We From The LBC. 
And so, you know, being out here in Salt Lake, a lot of people, you know, no one out here made it in hip hop. So I was like the first person that's actually doing major things with the big artists. You know what I'm saying? Like I was even getting ready to do stuff with Eminem before I got arrested. So I went out um, and did a song with his group D12 in Sacramento where my partner was from and um, Razzcast and all them out there. And I'm like, yo, I want M. M walked in the hotel room and I'm like, how can I get him? They connect me with his manager and they're like, yo, we're going to be on your two albums. And when I got back from that trip is when I got arrested. Wow. So and things so are moving. Oh, yeah. Through. Things are moving. I just did a movie with Snoop, too. We did like this hip hop movie and I signed two artists. I actually signed one of Tupac's uh, protégés from his group and I signed one of Snoop's. And I also signed a, a R&B pop singer named Dante Thomas, who already had went platinum and did stuff with Pink. And we had these albums that really come out. I had an unreleased Tupac song on this album. You know, we we're about to get Eminem. I had a gang of Snoop songs and other people. And so, you know, we just signed a big deal. Things were ready to go. And, you know, when I got back, like right when I got to the top was when I got taken and, down. <laughs> and you think probably because of, of the lack of that type of success traditionally in Salt Lake City area, it just raised a lot of eyebrows. People saw some of who you were involved with and tried to start connecting and building a straw man argument of what they thought you were possibly up to. Absolutely. They, I mean, they were saying that I was like the West Coast rap industry's gun and drug supplier, which is ridiculous. Why would they need to get stuff from Salt Lake when they're in California? You know what I mean? So it was ridiculous. But, you know, what we later found out when we were doing my, I'm doing a documentary and uh, Mark Wahlberg's company had a hand in my doc and, now KG, Kevin Garnett is, you know, taking it to the next level. And we were interviewing former prosecutors and agents on my case. And, you know, what we found out, some of them said that they looked at me like I was bringing Ebola into Utah and that if they don't do something about it, they will have invited moral corruption. And so they had to stop me basically, you know, cause I brought Snoop out here. I brought all kinds of acts out to Salt Lake and we were doing concerts, recording albums. You know, I had an album out where they were representing my city and, you know, we had all these people talking about it. And so it was just, it was getting big and, you know, they didn't like it. I, had Mac, I did an album with Mac Dre and I know they didn't like Mac Dre, you know, because from the Bay Area, you know, and he was real, you know, gangster. So they didn't like that. And I did an album with him and brought him out here. And yeah, it was, it, they so, didn't like it at all. So, so like just even culturally from Utah, just kind yeah, of the, 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 ultra conservative. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of people don't know Salt Lake City itself is very liberal. It's very diverse, but the outskirts, when you go outside of Provo. Salt Lake City, yeah, Provo, all that, the, the, those are all, you know, they're all Mormon, they're all conservative, and they don't like that culture. But in the city itself, it's diverse. We had the first openly gay mayor. And so it's like, the Salt Lake City is diverse, but you go outside of that, and it starts getting rural, and they don't like it. And so they looked at me bringing this hip hop, weed smoking culture into Utah, and they were like, no, we got to stop this. So, so when all this started to transpire, did you have any obviously probably no idea that somebody that was inside of your circle was taking stuff back or and even kind of almost conspiring to set you up in a way yeah i have no idea i mean the dude they used was like he had been to prison multiple times he was like a violent gang member and he was like the last person i would have think would would have done this and so and he was doing so much bigger stuff like he was working with cartel members so he could have given up anyone. And actually, we actually spoke to him recently. I, I didn't, but someone on my team, they want to interview him. And he said that he offered to give up murders, uh, uh, you know, carfuls of meth with the cartel. And they said, no, we want Weldon Angelos. And he was like, he told them even to this day, he don't understand why they turned all that down just for me. 
And at the end of the day, when they did the year and a half investigating me, all they got was $900 worth of weed. And it was like, they had to do something for it. So they had to make this case bigger than it was because they spent all that money and all that time and all they got was $900. So, so was this publicized heavily in the news at the time or was it very, they subpoenaed Snoop Dogg to my trial. So it was really, you know, they subpoenaed all the music industry people I worked with. No, only like one person showed up, but like they had, they subpoenaed up the record label I signed with. They subpoenaed, you know, a bunch of different, they tried to make it a, a, a hip hop trial. Like they, the prosecutor started his closing argument in my case rapping uh, uh one of the verses from my Mac Dre album and it was like I didn't write the lyrics you know I produced the album Mac Dre wrote the lyrics and rapped it but they were using that against me and they got this jury who none of them was from Salt Lake City the, all the jury in my case were from like Provo and beyond and so I was scared to death when I seen the jury and they were looking at hip-hop with the bulletproof vest because you know we wore vests we went around it just part of the you know industry was dangerous back then and so you know, they looked at that and I had a bunch of legal guns and, and just, you know, all these, you know, black gangster looking dudes and they were scared. And so, you know, the conviction didn't surprise me. Yeah, uh, I, I can imagine. And so conviction sentenced to 55 years and you had said, so this was a federal charge that they. Yep. And it was okay. a mandatory minimum. Wow. Okay. And where did they send you? Where did ultimately to do your time? I went to Lompoc, California. Okay. And kind of going, had you, you'd never been in trouble prior to that, never served time. So, I mean, walking into a a facility like that, thinking that you're going to do possibly, you know, the rest of your life in jail and what's going through your head. Yeah. They sent me to a maximum security. So I didn't go to like a federal prison camp, you know, club bed. I didn't go to club bed. I thought I was going to a camp. I was on the bus. Cause I'm like, we, you know, first offense, nonviolent. We're driving on the bus and we, we stop at the low, let people off. There's two places left. The, the USP, which is a maximum security or the camp where they don't even have a fence where you're playing golf and whatever. Um, and so, and there's like one dude on there. It looks like a straight square. And I'm, that's when I knew I was hit. Cause they're like, we got one person for the camp. And I look at this dude and he's like, that's me. And I'm like, damn, I'm going to the pin. And so when I got off there, it was just like TV shit. <laughs> like when I got out the next day and walked the yard, like you see nothing but the worst of the worst. And so I'm looking like, damn, all this for some weed. It was crazy. Yeah, no, it's, it's gotta be your worst nightmare. Yeah, it definitely was. So how long, I mean, was it right away that you realized, like, I'm not going to accept this? Or was there a point in time where you kind of, I don't want to say accepted the fact that you were in in prison, but just kind of like, okay, now I got to shift my focus and my energy to staying alive inside of this place and making sure that I I understand and learn what's going on around me because it's, it's not a place where I've been before. Was that, was it a little bit of time before you kind of shifted back into, I'm going to get my ass out of here or? Yeah. Well, so when I first got in there, I thought I was getting out in like six months. <laughs> you know, when you, every, everyone goes to this, you, you go into denial. When you get a long sentence in the federal system and you've never been to prison, you're like, this doesn't happen. Someone's going to fix this. Like, this is just something I have to go through. You know, somebody, a higher court is going to look at this, say, this is wrong. Send them back. And we had some good arguments. Like they did a search and seizure in one of my houses and they didn't have a warrant. They had a warrant for the car. And instead they raided my son's house 
and they went through everything. They took a bunch of like photos of when I was younger with like guns and weed and just dumb shit when you're young, you know, taking pictures. And then they got a bunch of clothing that was like Snoop Dogg clothing, like e-siders and stuff like that. And they used all that as, as evidence of me being like a gang member. So they said, I'm from the Barrier Crips. I'm from Snoop's Crip gang. Like they put me in like three different gangs. They didn't know what the hell they were trying to do. So that scared the jury. They showed them these pictures of me when I was 14 years old with some guns. Like we went shooting my dad, you know, my dad was big on second amendment, even though he was old. And so, you know, they took all those pictures and all these clothes of like, you know, different kind of, you know, rap industry, hip hop clothing and made it said, this is gang attire. These bulletproof vests weren't used for the industry. They're used because they're out shooting people and doing all this crazy madness. So they use that evidence and that's what scared the jury and got me convicted. So we had a good argument that that was a, a invalid search. My judge wouldn't throw it out. So we went to the appellate court and we pretty much won at our oral argument. The court's like, yo, this evidence should have never been in there. You know, we, we need to suppress it. And so they, my attorneys were celebrating. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be going back for a new trial. I'm going home. And then two months later, we get, I get the opinion. And yeah, they threw the evidence out, but they said, oh, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. So we're going to affirm your sentence. And so, man, that was all I had left was that appeal. And after that, it's dimmer and dimmer from there. And so at that point, I'm like, man, I just got to focus and keep my mind in prison because I was living outside still. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm planning every day what I'm going to get back in the industry, albums I'm going to drop. And then when that came, I just like, I got to, I'm going to, I got to get comfortable. I'm going to be here for a while. And so I never gave up though, because my judge, you know, he did something that no judge had ever done. He had, as he was sentencing me to 55 years, he called on the president to commute my sentence and no federal judge had ever done that. So he says, while my hands are tied and this sentence is unjust, you know, I call upon the president to fix this and a Congress to change the law that forced him to, to do that. And so that kept me a little bit of hope. But he didn't say commute a sentence to immediate time served. He says, you know, when he served enough time. And that could be 10 years, that could be 15 years, 12 years, whatever. And so, you know, that was some hope, but it wasn't like any immediate hope. And then so I started, you know, focusing more on, you know, surviving. Um, and then I started, you know, really hitting the law library and really looking into the law and understanding it. And that's when I started fighting to get myself out. And I started just, um, you know, my sister was my, the face of my campaign to free me. And I had a lot of media attention. When my judge did that, literally, you know, people from all over the country were reaching out to help. I, we had 165 former federal judges, former federal prosecutors, former U.S. attorneys general sign on my uh, Supreme Court because we filed all the way to the Supreme Court. And they actually wrote a brief in support. And so now we have like Janet Reno and all these big political figures uh, jump on and help me. And that's when I started kind of feeling like I had a shot, but I lost that too. And so it got to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to just do time until a president's elected that is pro criminal justice reform and will possibly commute my sentence like my judge asked, because I knew Bush wasn't going to do it. And he didn't. Um, when Obama was elected, you know, at the same time Obama was elected, a, a man named Mike Lee was elected to the Senate. And this, this guy was actually one of the prosecutors in the office that prosecuted me. His name was Mike Lee. And he was elected to the Senate on the Tea Party movement. He actually was against my sentence. And so when he started working on criminal justice reform, he had reached out to my family saying that he wants to help get me out. And that's sort of where the, the movement to, to get President Obama to intervene began. It was like 2011. And we had uh, like people like Bonnie Rayett um, helping Mike Epps. 
Alicia Keys, Snoop Dogg, all these people back then, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, and then Mike Lee really picked it up and, you know, took it to the next level. Um, and then other senators followed, like Cory Booker jumped on, Patrick Leahy, and even the Koch brothers. And when it got there, I'm like, okay, I know I'm going home. I just don't know when, but I know I'm going home now. Man, that's, that's, that's kind of incredible to hear. I mean, especially as we sit here in 2020, so divided in a lot of ways in this country, to think that, I mean, you're naming people that are so contrasting uh, as far as opinion and politics and background and wow, I mean, that's... Yeah, we called it unlikely allies. They were yeah. like unlikely allies. And we really had the most liberal, like Bonnie Ray is extremely liberal on the left. And then, you know, Mike Lee is the furthest on the right and the Koch brothers. And so, you know, at this point, we had already filed uh, for President Obama to commute my sentence. And now I have, you know, five senators support me. My judge actually left the bench because of my case. He left it probably about a few years after I was sentenced. He said he just didn't want to be a part of the system anymore. And so he be became like my number one advocate as well. And having him and, you know, our own, my own senator and all these other people put pressure on the White House. And, you know, eventually I was released after 13 years. Um, I was released on May 31st, 2016. Wow. Wow. Yeah, immediate release. And so what is that process? I mean, is it you just get you know, a, a visit from your lawyer and, and they just say, hey, well, then it's happened. And, and like how long from that point in time until you're walking out the, the doors? And uh, in 2015, Obama was commuting hundreds of sentences, like every three months he would commute 80, 50, 100. And like, I think, and I got passed up every time. And I'm like, how am I going to get passed up? Like literally, I got everybody in the world supporting me. I even had hundreds of former prosecutors and even former Republican governors. I had four Republican governors, mayors, po uh, former police chiefs. It was just ridiculous, like the most ridiculous amount of support. And so I'm like, my petition was pending for three and a half years. And other people were getting out who just filed like six months ago. And I'm like, someone in the prison I was with, same charges, same everything, filed six months later, he walked out. And I'm like, what? And this was Christmas of 2015. I was so disgusted, like, why, why is he not commute my sentence? Like, you know, every, I, have, I fit the criteria that he laid out for people who should get a commutation. And so the next batch came in March and I wasn't on it either. And I thought for sure I'd be on it. And that's when I was about to give up. I called my attorney and I'm like, man, I'm done with this. And he said, actually, I got some good news. And so, um, you know, he didn't tell me what it was, but he said, you know, I think you're gonna be released soon. And, um, what was that? That was the end of March. And literally by March 31st, I was told to roll up and I was just out of there that day. And it was just the craziest thing. I thought I was getting transferred and they like threw clothes at me and they were like really janky looking clothes. You know what I mean? But they threw clothes at me and I'm like, I'm thinking maybe I'm going on a plane and they don't want me to take khakis or whatever. I don't know what's going on. And they said, you got a, call, you got a number for us to call for a ride. And that's when I knew it was real. And that was crazy. Wow. Yeah, and I, man, I can't, I can't possibly wrap my mind around what that whole experience must have been like for you. Um, and, you know, coming out after 13 years, the world changes so much. And, you know, I mean, was, oh, man. 
cell phones. What kind, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, little things like that. I mean, what kind of culture shock is that? And as far as a transition back into, you know, normal everyday life. Yeah, it was difficult being in groups, like, or even in crowds. I went to the mall with my sister to try to get clothes. When I first got out, I didn't tell anyone. I was like, I need to get a haircut. I need to get some clothes. I need to, because you know, you didn't clean you didn't up. Have, you didn't have, you're free and clear, no parole, no nothing. And I'd almost have to think those types of aspects, although, you know, also beneficial for the state to keep tabs on people who, you know, they may feel are still somewhat of a risk. So it's got to be a benefit for people coming out because it's like a little bit of structure still and accountability as they make their way into the world. And then like, they're just like, yo, well, peace. Well, yeah. So I, I wasn't on parole or probation or anything, but they have in the feds what's called a supervised release where they just kind of like keep an eye on you. And I did that for 18 months and then I was okay. completely off. And basically it's, you just, you know, they just want to know you're doing good. You don't have to like, I don't take drug tests or anything like that, but I just checked in once a month like on online we're like yeah i'm working i'm doing this doing that and that's it um okay. so it was pretty easy and they figured i've done way too much time already 13 years for 900 they're like they really left me alone you know what i mean but some people that need it if you got like a lot of convictions and it's more restricted where they're like you know they monitor you but i was just on like the minimal you know what i mean yeah and so but when i got out like it was just crazy because i went into the mall with my sister to get clothes and it was just like i ran out because i couldn't handle being around people and then the cell phone, like I literally freaked out on my sister because she kept texting me and it was just ding, ding, ding. I'm like, stop fucking texting me shit. Like I was freaking out because it was just so much. I'm used to just a phone with, with numbers to call somebody. You know what I mean? I had those big, thick, you know, Nokia's that you could knock someone out with. And to have this one with all the social media and everything, it was just so much information overload. And it, it took me a while, man. Like it was crazy. Like I didn't sleep for two weeks. I was like going to bed at like, 12:30, waking up at 2:30, and just like every day and just crazy adrenaline rush too just being out it was wild mm -hmm. what was crazier though was being out and weeds legal in all these places you know because i you know when i got out i went straight to la i was going to all these different places and just seeing cannabis being legal when i just lost 13 years of my life because of it and that was the craziest part um, I was in there with my friend, Luke Scarmazzo, who's probably more deserving of a release than I was. He just followed state law and had a medical dispensary in Modesto. And, and the, at the tail end of the Bush administration, they'd prosecute him. He got 22 years following state law to the T, but it's federally illegal. And so, you know, he, they went to trial. They offered him 10 years. He's like, I'm not 10 years for following state law. You're tripping. And so he went to trial, lost, got 22 um, me and him were in there watching legalization happen across the states and me and him were tripping out every day, like, and yeah. they're keeping us in here. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, do you, I'm, I got to imagine you guys are aware of, you're obviously, you're aware of that inside knowing that the laws have been changing and you're still sitting there and it, it kind of, it's crazy, but today there's still people sitting. Oh yeah. There's, there's, and that's what people don't know now. Like I was at one of these stores, I think it was MedMen or someone, I was asking people and that I was in there, I was just testing consumers. And I'm like, um, and I tell them about what I'm doing. And, if, and they're like, people are still going to prison. They're like, what are you talking about? It's legal. I'm like, it's not legal. It's state legalized it, but it's still illegal federally. Any given time, the federal government can go into any dispensary, any, any grow up and indict everyone there. And they're going to go to prison and they can leave everyone else alone on, on, in, in the community, just that one store. And they can't do anything about it. No one can say anything. 
um, it's perfectly legal. It's not even, um, you know, because Luke tried saying, you know, they violated equal justice principles. Like there's a dispensary down the street from us. You didn't prosecute them and the feds can get away with it. And so people don't know that unless you're medical right now, that's the only people that are protected because of the writer, the congressional writer that's been introduced every year. And that writer protects Luke. So today Luke couldn't even be prosecuted because he was only medical. So that's crazy that he's still in there for, you know, he's got uh, 10 more years left and he couldn't be prosecuted today. So what's that's a crazy thing. What's his name again? Luke Scarmazzo. Luke Scarmazzo. Yeah, he had, he was one of the early like people. He found his dispensary, I think in 2004 or five. Um, he was way in the beginning, you know, like when they first started, he had, it was called CCC, I believe. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, he got 22 years. His friend Ricardo was his co-defendant. They were co-owners. He got 20. And I helped get them out. I wrote their petitions to President Obama and the administration only granted Ricardo's and denied Luke's and they got the same case. And so that just kind of shows you how messed up our system is. Even when it tries to help people, it doesn't do a good job at it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, man, it's fucked up because is it a, pro is it a problem because of just how many people there are and you know, like, I, I guess some people who are in high positions, they look at things at, at just a numbers level. And to them, it's like, it's all yeah, just numbers. And, but it's like, even if there's one person, that's a life that's years. I mean, I know you lost 13 years with you had two sons, right? Yep. Got out and they're grown. They had facial hair and it was crazy. And so in one problem with the Obama administration's clemency program was that he did something. And it, it, I think this is the only stain that I know on his legacy he let prosecutors decide who should get clemency. And, you know, it's, it was still happening even in the Trump administration until now they created a new clemency committee that bypasses the DOJ because someone, you know, back in the 1930s decided the Department of Justice should be over the pardon office. And so now the pardon office is in the Department of Justice. The same entity that prosecutes you gets to decide whether they made a mistake or whether they were too harsh and they're not in the business of second guessing their work. How many times do you think a prosecutor and say, hmm, I think I was too rough on that guy. Let me recommend a commutation. That doesn't happen. And so Obama forced them and, and his attorney general was like, you must give us these cases that fit this criteria. And although Luke fit the criteria, you know, his prosecutor took his activism personal and she denied it. Ricardo was just quiet, went to trial with Luke, didn't say anything. Luke was an activism. He said, I believe I have a right to sell this under state law it's our right and so he fought tooth and nail and he was very loud and vocal and they took that personal and so you know obama making that mistake of letting prosecutors make this decision they looked at ricardo like oh he's the quiet one let him out luke's the one that's going to get out and, and be loud and and be an activist we don't want that let him stay in there yeah that's you know it, i don't know how if there could be a law or if there's things that are out there proposed now to make it law but unless there'd be some additional action that occurred after the fact, right. there should be no way that one person gets out and the other doesn't for the same crime. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And so one thing we're doing now, um, and this is something that we sort of wrote the blueprint of when I helped pass what's called the first step act. Um, when I got out of prison, I know Obama was still in office, but when he left the Trump administration invited me to the white house. And so I started attending these summits and, you know, Mike Lee was there, the Koch brothers were there, you know, I, and, I, and I mostly went with them because I was working with them while I was in prison. And so, you know, we worked on what's called the First Step Act and the First Step Act changed the law that gave me 55 years. 
So today, no prosecutor can take that lethal mandatory minimum and threaten people either to cooperate or to take a deal that's unjust. It's gone. So the maximum they could have made me get would be 15 years, but it's likely I would have gotten five today. But I mean, they're not even prosecuting marijuana anymore. So I wouldn't have gotten any charge today. You know, it's a, it would have been a small little state charge if that. So yeah. we passed this law, you know, I, Mike Lee was amazing and Cory Booker, you know, I worked with both of them on helping pass this and Van Jones and a bunch of other people. It was a big coalition of unlikely allies. So we reformed four aspects of the criminal justice system for the sentencing, um, like for the mandatory minimums. And one thing we did that was sort of didn't get a lot of fanfare, and we did it kind of on the low low, was um, they amended what's called compassionate release. Compassionate release was traditionally for people who were over 70 years old or who were critically ill, like you were you know, terminal because of cancer or something where you didn't have much time left. Well, now the First Step Act changed it where a judge can look at anyone's petition and find if there's an extraordinary compelling circumstance, they can reduce their sentence. And since that happened, there's been 650 grants and the First Step Act just passed, you know, not too long ago, you know, um, hasn't even been, I don't even think it's been two years yet. Wow. And so 650 people got out. And so judges were granting this for the people who the law changed, but it wasn't retroactive. And so I was talking to Luke saying, well, the fact that your state's legal recreationally, right? The fact that there's a writer that protects you from being prosecuted and the fact that the government's not prosecuting people in California, I think that constitutes an extraordinary compelling circumstance. I would so, agree. <laughs> so we argued this in Luke's case right now. And then we're saying that not only that, his co-defendant got clemency and he didn't. And so the only right thing to do would be to let him go. He's already served 12 years. Even if you agree, okay, it's illegal federally, 12 years is enough, let them go. And so we wrote this for everybody who's in there for marijuana. We made the argument. So anyone with the marijuana case, especially if you're in a state where it's legal now, and wasn't legal when you were prosecuted, can make this argument. And so we're doing it in Lance Glore's case, uh, Luke's case, and a few other cases, because if Luke's case wins and sets this precedent, nearly anyone in there for cannabis can get out with this provision. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. So we're, we're hoping it wins. This is a test case for us. Is there, what can people do that, that are hearing this or watching this? You know, is there something they can do? Are there petitions they can sign? Are there, you know, places that they can go to, to make a difference? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you go to the weldonproject.org, you know, there's guidance on there. Um, but people can get behind us and help us support these. I know our next project we're going to do, I don't know if you heard in February, I went to the White House and I hand delivered a letter to the president's staff that asked him to start commuting sentences like Luke's because he may or may not get out through court action, but there's other people just like him. And, you know, I use Luke's case as an example, and we've had bipartisan support on this letter. Um, NBA star Kevin Garnett signed it, um, actor Danny Trejo, um, former Governor Gary Johnston, former federal prosecutors, uh, 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 former Republican senators, and a bunch of people signed it from both sides. And so I took this letter to the White House, we brought cameras in, and I established a rapport with their office about this one issue that, that, that I'm putting all my focus on right now. And so I wanna go out there and do a vigil, and I wanna bring the pictures of all the people in there for cannabis cases like Luke's, and I wanna um, do a vigil outside the White House, not to protest, not to um, you know, criticize the president, but to ask him to do this. And so that's gonna be Mission Green's next, next project. And I could have my White House contact, meet us outside, and I'll give him a list 
of all the people who we believe fit this criteria and who can be released immediately. I oh, mean, that's awesome. Yeah. And so people want to support. That's one way they can support us get to there because I want to bring our team out there and bring a camera crew and create some really dope content. And I think the way to get the president to act is to not, you know, criticize him, but I think just call on him to, to intervene in this. I mean, you see people all the time, he goes on the news and they're like, hey, pardon the tiger guy. He's like, should I? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and I, and I got contacts with a lot of celebrities, so, and he loves celebrities. So I feel like the best way is to, you know, appeal to him, you know, and using these various strategies rather than, you know, criticizing them. And so far it's worked. I mean, we've been having, we had a, someone sentence commuted in February. There was a female who got 20 years for a cannabis case and she didn't even touch any of the weed. And so she got commuted. She had 15 years in. So, you know, saved her five years. Yeah, man. You know, it's, it's real. it's, it's really interesting, right? Because we're in such a polarizing time with politics and not everything is so black and white. And I think your situation shows that when people, because we're all humans, right? It's like, if we can get together on a human connection and we can focus on the things like this, I, I can only imagine that this turns into a, a snowball effect and makes change positively across everything. It's like, we should be highlighting this. This should be talked about on CNN, right? Like, I get it. There's all, a lot of other things that are important we need to shine lights on in this time. But man, where's the positive stories about things like this that can lead to more positive stories, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and we're trying to mimic that coalition that got me out. If we were able to get these, you know, far, you know, we, uh, Snoop Dogg and Charles Koch, like actually brought them together at South by Southwest. Yep. And, you know, Charles Koch funds the most conservative, um, you know, lawmakers across the country and judges. Um, and I brought Snoop Dogg there and we built a bridge and we worked together and we got change. That's yep. how you do it. You can't cut with one scissor blade. So you need to bring both, both sides together. And so that coalition that got me out, I want to use those connections that I made with all those wonderful people on getting other people out of jail. And so and what we really need is we need the cannabis industry to step up and help us because, you know, we're uniquely suited to get this done. We're, uh, we, I know we haven't gotten into how I, you know, formed or my mission or anything like that, but let me start. So yeah. after we passed the First Step Act, um, I knew that my friend Luke wouldn't benefit from it. You know, we were celebrating at the White House. You know, everyone was giving speeches and, you know, there was Democrats even in there. We saw like movie stars and they're like Vivica Fox with there, a bunch of people. I'm like, so, you know, um, it was cool, but then I started thinking like, wait a minute, I'm celebrating, but Luke and people who are the most deserving because this is, it's freaking illegal right now. And there's people making millions and billions of dollars, but you're keeping select people in prison. So the fact that Luke didn't benefit from the First Step Act made me like the day I got home from DC, I'm like, I'm launching a nonprofit to do something about this. And so, you know, we came up with the Mission Green Initiative and like, we're going to focus exclusively on people in there for cannabis. Um, and, you know, I figured I can bring my entertainment contacts together with my political contacts and get a lot done. Mm -hmm. And I invited everyone to the table um, in cannabis. You know, we had some early supporters from, I, I know we, I know you're, like you said, your brother helped us do the launch party and Weed Maps helped fund it, Famous Farms, um, Bloom, and a few other people. And so, you know, with just that launch alone, we were able to get someone out of prison. And so, you know, I want to continue doing that. And so right now we really need the cannabis industry to get behind us. And right now, you know, they're seeing like all the protests and everything. So, you know, some of them companies are starting to reach out to us now and like wanting to get behind us because they see what we can do. Like we can literally save lives if we get people behind us.
that's that's awesome man you guys were actually that's to think that you brought people together for that night you were a thought leadership and to take that and turn it into getting somebody out of prison that's that's so heavy and there's so many more like literally the loop case you know i've self-funded mission green from he, from after that night on like you know we've been doing it ourselves and i've been doing so much like sometimes some days i'll spend five days straight writing motions on behalf of cannabis prisoners because they can't afford an attorney. So I'll do the legal work for them. I literally sit home and write their motions and file them in court for them. Um, because, but, but think if we could do this on such a higher level, if we can get the industry behind us, we can mimic what we're doing with Luke on all, there's a couple thousand, probably 3000 people in federal prison for cannabis. Now we're not going to be able to get them all out unless Congress changes the law. But there are some compelling cases like Luke's, and some are females that shouldn't be in there in the first place, that we could get out if we come together. And so, you know, we're trying to partner with as many um, companies as possible. Vanks reached out to us, and they want to get behind this initiative. And if we can be, you know, get fully funded and, and, and take it to the level we can, we could get a lot done. Like, I literally got access to the White House. I could bring these companies and have a seat at, in front of Jared Kushner, and we could talk about releasing cannabis prisoners and reforming cannabis law you know we need to we need to fix the banking system obviously they need to have access and we need to um you know we need to end prohibition and so that's like you know one of our other goals even though our first goal is freedom you know but that, if we end prohibition you know that'll result in their release as well man you it seems like it's such a huge mountain to climb it's uh i'm glad that there's a guy like you that's leading the charge man it's uh it's, it's really really inspiring yeah, the pieces are all there. We just have to execute and, you know, we're doing it on, you know, a, a smaller level, but I would like to take it to the next level. And I think if Luke's case wins and we'll know in the next couple of weeks, that's going to be a huge precedent that we could mimic, you know, all throughout the country. I'll make sure I keep on top of that and share it with everybody. Um, no, man, that's. Yeah, we'll have a ruling any day and then, you know, we can take it to the next level. And the reason why I'm focusing on federal system is because say if you know like states like california when you go legal they provide they provide a mechanism to release the people in prison for marijuana now michigan hasn't done such a good job because michael thompson's still in prison even though it's legal and so mm -hmm. we're getting behind his case we i've been supporting him for a while i got him on mtv and we're working to get him out but other states you know like california and washington they provide a mechanism to release people and expunge the records and so the federal system there's nothing like if the, every state in the country can legalize cannabis and they'll people in federal prison will still be there so from a state level i mean i guess because federally it's a little bit different on how change occurs and i think you're kind of leading things almost on a forefront to keep the pressure on at the highest aspects of the federal government but on a state level i'm going to flip it around is there anybody that's really the roadblock to this that when it comes time for people to go out and vote and to put their voices out there to be heard on this topic where they can change because if there's you know i mean how many people are you know doing other things that people are voting them into office for because they think that they're doing a great job but they don't know that that's the one person that may be standing in the way of people's freedom yeah that's true yeah we found that like voting's not enough you got to hold them accountable you got to hold them like just like i don't I was a cory booker fan when he was running for president i was super excited because i know he really cares and he said he was going to commute 17,000 sentences on day one. And I believe him. With Joe Biden, you know, he was like, oh, I wouldn't do this, wouldn't do that. He's getting pressured to do it, but he's not running on it. And so 
you know, he may not do it when he gets into office. And so a lot of people are excited about, you know, getting rid of Donald Trump, but is it going to be better for cannabis? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, Cause politics are crazy. When someone gets in office, sometimes they don't always do what they said they were going to do. Now I believe honestly, the democratic party will force Joe to, you know, take that stance. Um, but, but a lot of people have gotten elected on promises to do things. And when they got in office completely went the other way. Yeah. That's no, true. Um, you know, that's all we can do is hope and keep the pressure. Um, yeah, but change is coming on, you know, on a grassroots level and more states are going to keep legalizing and legalizing and soon the federal government's not going to have a choice but to legalize it. And then we got to decide, do we want the feds in the business of regulating this or do we want them completely out and just take it out of the federal code? And that's sort of the debate now. Like, do we want them, you know, over-regulating us or do we want them just to get out of the business completely? Yeah, I know. If you look at California, I think there's a pretty strong, uh, you know, viewpoint that maybe too much control is not going to be the answer to success. That's my fear with the federal government. <laughs> yeah, but well, shit, man, it's. Uh, I still, you know, I, I commend you for all your work. Um, somebody that spent time in prison could certainly have a selfish outlook when they get out. Um, you know, especially with what you left behind. Any dabble back in the music industry or are you just kind of full focused on driving Mission Green and making sure that things kind of get up off the ground? Yeah, right now I'm really focused on this. I mean, I still have music industry contacts. You know, I'm also working to get, I'm actually working on getting rappers out of prison too. My friend Loon from Bad Boy Records is in there. I probably, hopefully he'll be out in the next month. Um, Ty Dolla Sign's brother's in there. I'm working on that case. And you know, Ty's a good dude. I'm hoping he's going to uh, join us and join the fight as well. And I'm also trying to get in the industry as well. I, we, we launched a cannabis brand called Reform Cannabis with two E's. I put Reefer and Reform together. And that has a cause behind it as well. So basically, uh, proceeds from Reform Cannabis are going directly to people's commissary accounts in prison. Because when we, you know, while Mission Green's fighting to free them, I asked them, what else can I be doing for you? What else can we do to help you? I know you know, freedom takes its time. And they said, well, we could use some consistent, you know, assistance because, you know, there, I remember when I was in there, sometimes like when all my music money ran out from lawyers and everything, I had to choose between calling my sons on Christmas or, you know, getting some hygiene products and it's messed up. And I heard a story about a young lady who was in there for cannabis or an older lady, actually, she had to pick between buying tampons or calling her family on a holiday. And so, and so she picked calling her kids and using toilet paper. And I'm like, that's disgusting. That's crazy that they're not providing this. And so with Reform Cannabis, we are pledging to provide commissary money for the life of the brand. On, and we'll get as many people as we can as we grow. So will our giving and so will our advocacy. That's awesome. That's, that's so cool, man. You're like completely cornering the, the entire problem and, and uh, providing resources. That's so helping people get out, providing legal resources. You're helping them as far as funding while they're inside, entering society on, on, as they're coming out. And, and yeah, we're even trying to get in jobs when they come out. That's why we're working with banks and, and even Kaliva is one of our partners where you know, we can help get people back in the industry when they get out. And so I just know what I went through and what it's like to struggle in prison with no money sometimes and no support. And so not everyone in there has celebrity friends and, and politicians and stuff. So I'm, I've made that promise when I'm leaving Luke looked to me, don't forget about me. I said, I'm not, I'm gonna do whatever I can to get you out. So. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So as far as social media, um, as far, you're at, at Weldon Angelos, 
correct? And then yes, at Weldon and then at Project Mission Green is the foundation. Right. Mm -hmm. Where else can people find information? Um, or the websites, uh, theweldonproject.org or reformcannabis.com with two E's, reformcannabis.com. And, and our, uh, what's our Instagram is um, reef underscore form or orm. Yeah, <laughs> that's our, uh, our cannabis brand. Okay, awesome. Well, Weldon, man, I really do appreciate you hopping on here with me. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. For sure. Well, you know, we'll keep in, in contact and I want to make sure I keep on, um, you know, as far as real time, making sure that anything we can do to help or push out information um, for your cause and, and everybody's cause that we're able to do that. But thank you again, man. And uh, keep fighting the fight. And uh, yeah, we wish sure. you and, and everybody good, a ton of luck in, in making this happen. So thanks, bro. Appreciate it.